Hi, this is Robin Gray, and you're listening to the inaugural Three Acres and a Cow podcast, or Cowcast, potentially. Not quite sure what to call it yet. Inspired by the Waking Up podcasts of Sam Harris, I'll be recording conversations with interesting people on topics covered in the show Three Acres and a Cow. What follows is a conversation I had with Christopher Price, who is Director of Policy for the Countryside Landowners Association. The CLA are not normal bedfellows for somebody interested in land reform such as myself, but Chris and I have found common ground in past meetings, as well as some things we didn't agree on, and I thought speaking with him on record would be useful. In hindsight, I may have been overly polite in places. Listening back, there are things that Chris says which I wish I'd pushed back on a bit more, but I'll leave it to you to make your own minds up. Please let me know what you think via Twitter, Facebook or email. Somewhat annoyingly, I managed to fluff the introduction and the outro, so these have both been taken out. Now here without ceremony and a few clunky edits is our conversation. For people who aren't aware of your organisation, how would you describe it in your own words? We're an organisation that represents farmers and rural landowners. We have about 32,000 members who between them own or manage uh, about half of uh, rural England and Wales. We were formed in 1907 um, primarily because of uh, concerns of punitive taxes being being imposed and have been carrying on ever since. Um, although we started off representing the interests of the very big landowners, the majority of our landowner members now have got less than 100 acres. Mm. Okay, wonderful. And is, I mean, are you, is there a public list of your members? For example, I would say, is the Duke of Westminster or the, are the royal family members, or is it that, that not sort of information that's out? No, it's out? not a, uh, we, don't, we don't maintain a public list of yeah. uh, members. We know we're a club that people can choose to belong to. Yeah, okay, great. And because you're quite broad church with your members, you know, do you tend to have many sort of conflicts of interest between members in terms of people who want to manage land certain ways and manage land in other ways? Um, perhaps less than you, you might assume. I mean, everything comes down to the ownership and management of land. Mm. And one of the things I've found over the years I've been working here is that the issues are pretty much the same, whether you own a couple of acres or hundreds of acres. What matters is the intensity. Yeah. Okay, great. And something that I sort of understood from you and just want to get is that, you know, the CLA sees its owners much more as stewards of the land rather than people who are necessarily buying land for speculation or tax avoidance or money laundering. Like, it's, is it a more sort of long... How do you, how do you it tends to, to that? Because our origins are in the, the larger estates, um, the intergenerational aspect is... Is significant but I think the starting point with our members and with most other landowners will be that they firstly want to go and derive some sort of income from the land but in doing so they don't want to undermine the capital value of the land Mm -hmm. which in in itself encourages a more sustainable approach. People will be inclined to plant trees partly because they like trees but also in the hope that that will improve things going forward they won't want to trash the productive capacity of the land. Mm -hmm. So maintaining soil quality will be important. Mm -hmm. And maintaining supplies of water, ensuring that there's pollinators, all of those things will matter. Great. And something I think it's also useful to just understand, because there are other organisations that represent people who work on the land or people who own land. Um, So, for example, there's an organisation that represents just specifically grouse moors, isn't it? And I was just wondering if you could sketch out a few of the other people who sort of exist in your world. Um, There is an organisation called the Moorland Association, which, as you say, exists to um, promote and protect the interests of uh, grouse moors. Um, There are a number of shooting and field sports um, organisations who operate in a similar but still different uh, space to us. Yeah. Um, there is an organisation called the British Property Federation that is sort of our, the urban equivalent um, of us. 
represents the, the big urban landholders. Yeah. Um, and there is the uh, NFU, which was originally set up to represent tenants yeah. after we were set up to represent landowners. Yeah. They came into being a few years after us. Yeah. Um, and there is the, the TFA, the Tenant Farmers Association, that represents, well, as the name suggests, tenants, plus a huge variety of sector organisations, uh, and indeed the, the Land Workers Alliance <laughs> represents a different indeed. Uh, constituency, which indeed. presumably is where you were hoping I would get to. Um, I, I wasn't, wasn't fishing for a Land Workers Alliance name drop, although, um, yeah, I'm sure that um, that's a good one to have on the map too. Is the, the ILG, who I became aware of this morning, is that one that's publicly known, publicly facing, or is that...? No, I mean, all of our... Actually, I'd rather not go into that level of detail, talking okay. about our individual okay. committees. I'm happy okay. to talk about membership generally, but not... Okay, perfect. Okay, now that's fine. Oh, so that's a committee rather than a... Oh, yes, rather than a... Yes. Oh, okay. So a committee of CLA. Yes. We have... Um, I can... The CLA is a membership organisation. Mm -hmm. Um, divided into branches which roughly equate to counties. Uh, those county representatives come together to form a council which is a governing body. Uh, that appoints a board which uh, runs the business and a policy committee which, mm -hmm. as the name suggests, deals with policy. Mm -hmm. But as policy is quite wide-ranging and composed of a number of distinct elements. Yeah. We have half a dozen separate policy Okay, committees. perfect. Sorry, I understand. You must spend a lot of time wearing Brexit caps at the moment. Do the CLA feel that continuing direct area payments connected to farming subsidies is the right way forward? Is, is there a sort of a current CLA view on that or are you still in conversation? Or We're still having discussions, um, but at the top level, I think we and most other people in our space accept that direct payments on the current model don't have a, a long-term future. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of what we're looking for from a post-Brexit agricultural policy, there's three uh, broad limbs. Um, firstly, there needs to be significant investment to improve productivity and profitability. Mm -hmm. If we're going to move from a heavily subsidised world into a more market-facing world, it's important that farmers and indeed other rural businesses have the have the skills to um, to manage. Mm -hmm. um, that's probably not so much farming skills; it's skills in things like writing a business plan, managing yeah. cash flow. Yeah. Um, there is, I think, a need for better uh, research and development, uh, knowledge transfer, particularly at the farm farm level. Mm -hmm. Too much research is too theoretical and and high level. Yeah. Um, there's certain areas where some capital investment wouldn't go amiss. Um, during the 70s and 80s, a lot of farm infrastructure was funded through grants. Yeah. Um, grain stores, uh, drainage, certain things like that. A lot of that's ending its natural life. Yeah. Now might be the time for a bit of pump brining to ensure that that um, uh, sort of infrastructure is still fit for purpose. Uh, we would anticipate the amount being spent on that to decline as people got better at their businesses. But yeah. I think it's pretty important that we have something like that in the five, ten years after we leave the EU. Um, the, the second limb is uh, ensuring that farmers and landowners are properly rewarded for all of the public goods they provide. Yeah. By public goods, I mean those things that are provided by farmers and landowners, but for which they're not supported uh, through the market. Yeah. Perhaps the most obvious thing is biodiversity, but it's a lot more than that. You know, the maintenance of good quality soil helps everyone. Yeah. Okay. Um, we need uh, carbon sinks, we need clean water, uh, we need landscape. There's a whole range of things that are being provided by landowners of all scale, uh, but for which they're not, not being paid, and we maintain they should be. Okay. Um, we think we need to move away from the current model, which is based on a grant subject to conditions, to mm -hmm. something more contractual, so that farmers and landowners can know what they've got to do and what they'll get in return for that, in terms of getting paid a certain amount on a certain date. Yeah, interesting. To a degree of certainty. Yeah. Um, it will also, we hope, change the relationship between farmers and the state. 
so that farmers aren't perceived as being welfare cases in effect. Right. They're recognised as being people who are providing something that society says it wants. So just quickly, the last, um, the third limb of what we're talking about is to encourage wider rural development. There will be a certain number of farmers who won't be able to make a living purely from farming going forward. Yeah. And it will be necessary to give them some support into diversifying into other activities. Um, it's fairly recently that for many farmers, that's in a post-war thing, for them to have got all of their money from farming. Yeah. They would have done other things. We need to perhaps go back to that time uh, when there were other opportunities alongside farming. Okay, that's interesting. And so you think the time when, you know, um, say somebody who owns a, a, a stud farm for racehorses or somebody who owns a golf course shouldn't be getting farming subsidies? What they should be, if they are providing, they should be, if they are providing public benefits, mm. which they wouldn't otherwise provide, yeah. then they should be getting support for that. Okay. So you, don't, you wouldn't get supported because you're a golf course or because you own a, a stud. Yeah. You would get supported if you elect to go and provide certain public benefits. Okay. And I mean, I was, um, had the privilege to go and visit some farmers and landowners in Vermont last year, and I was interested there that essentially rather than um, landowners there being given money by the state, they pay tax on how much land they own, and but they get tax breaks, I think, all the way down to not having to pay any tax at all, depending on how well they manage their land for the environment and for public good. Do you think having a culture where landowners get money for just looking after their own possessions um, is the right way of framing it, rather than them being taxed on how much land they own and getting tax breaks um, if they look after it? No one's suggesting that you should be paid for looking after your own possessions. No, if you're running a business, yeah. then it's your responsibility to look after the, the means of production. Mm -hmm. What we're talking about is looking after those things that you wouldn't look after for your own benefit, you would look after because of the public benefit right. that they deliver. It's difficult drawing parallels with other parts of the, of the world. Um, because farming and landholding can be so different. Yeah. Now, in North America in particular, where there's so much more space, they tend to keep farming and environment separate. Mm -hmm. like farming is carried out on the prairies, mm -hmm. uh, environment is done in national parks. Mm -hmm. In our little crowded bit of Northern Europe, mm. um, we have to go and do both farming and nature on the same areas of land. Mm. So there's a different um, policy dynamic. I'm interested in that, you know, that, that message that the island is crowded. Um, I was certainly sort of under the impression I'm, that we have a smaller amount of built and sort of d developed land than a lot of other sort of European countries and the sort of concentration of people that we have in the towns and cities and like, yeah. I, the, I'm not, um, I wasn't saying they were crowded, I'm saying yeah. that we have to go and operate on a, a land sharing model rather than on a land sparing model that they can afford to do in America or have the capacity to do in America. Yeah. If we went to a North American system where you had prairies in some part of the country and national parks in which there was no farming activity or economic activity, mm -hmm. it would create a very different rural landscape. Interesting. Which I suspect wouldn't be popular with most people. Yeah. And I guess, you know, sort of uh, talking about tax, I mean, something that we've explored in the past and, and found some common ground on is that maybe the way that land is being taxed at the moment in this country isn't in the best interests of the wider society, particularly the idea that the increase in value in land being developed is not taxed in this country and that's leading to a lot of money flowing from all over the world into this country, inflating land prices, and almost has turned land from a place where we grow food or we house ourselves to a sort of a speculative financial asset, which has impacts on new entrance ability to farm, um, I guess, farmers' ability to farm, 
and also a knock-on effect on our, our house prices. What thoughts have you been having recently about the role of land value uplift and ways that that, that might be treated in order to be better for farmers, landowners and the wider community? I think you're putting together a whole range of issues together, related issues admittedly, but different issues together mm -hmm. um, in one narrative. And mm -hmm. I think it's difficult to view them in that combined way and that you do have to go and break them down to, mm -hmm. some, um, to some extent. Mm -hmm. One of the disadvantages with the current way of um, in, in which our tax system works is that it taxes fall on enterprise. Yeah. It's businesses that are taxed and it's income that's taxed. Yeah. So you're putting a, a burden on the productive part of the, uh, of the economy. It's not unreasonable to think, is there some better way of doing it? In many parts of the world, they have been looking at uh, taxing of land value uplifts as, as part of this. Although the CLA has yet to come to a, a settled view on, mm -hmm. on this, when you look at quite how different land values are in different parts of the country, you can see a certain attractiveness, uh, in, in attraction in looking at this. You know, for in example, um, land in central London with plan commission for housing will be, what, a million an acre, if not, if not more. Mm -hmm. um, whereas a, an agricultural field in the countryside will be worth about what, eight, nine, 10,000 mm -hmm. tops. Yeah. The value of that land won't be based on what anyone's done with it. It'll be based on the, largely on the infrastructure that society has provided adjacent to it. You know, in London, you will have all of the facilities which have been funded through a variety of reasons, um, and that'll be what's created the value. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't seem unreasonable to say that it's that that by taxing that unearned income and using that to fund wider public benefits, we might end up with a more desirable state of affairs than we do at the moment. Uh, when you think how limited the countryside often is in terms of public service provision, this mm -hmm. could be one way of um, mitigating the, the imbalance. Yeah, I know. It'd be interesting to see some of that value reinvested in infrastructure in the countryside to ensure that it can thrive and, and maybe even, you know, supporting land workers and, and new entrants into farming. Because, um, I mean, what's the, the average, I mean, the average age of farmers, it's getting, it's getting quite... It's around 58 and, and always has been. Sometimes I think that can be a misleading figure right. because often it will be father or grandfather who's head of the business. Okay. Um, but it's someone rather younger who is making the business decisions. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I certainly uh, remember very vividly, I think it was two years ago at the Oxford Royal Farming Conference, after I'd given a, a talk, having a number of farms literally queuing up to say, like, we want to pass our farms on, where's the next generation? And um, I've no idea if that's um, illustrative of the whole sector, but I certainly have, yeah, a number of experiences of farmers just saying, where's, where's the next generation coming from? And I know a lot of people who you know, would like to be land workers who just can't even imagine where they would get the capital or the opportunity to have their own um, sort of land-based enterprise or farm or Well, yes, I mean, you're, you're quite right. The easiest way to become a farmer is to inherit a farm. Mm. Um, the next way to, uh, easiest way to become a farmer is to marry the offspring of a farmer. Yes. And, um, <laughs> and Oxford Rural Farming Conference and Oxford Farming Conference and good in, opportunities for that, I'm sure. Inherit it through, through, that, through that route. Um, when we did a sort of um, back of an envelope type calculation, we reckoned that the smallest amount you would need to become an owner-occupying farmer would be at least 100,000. And um, that's probably on the on the modest end. Yeah, yeah. Um, to become a, a tenant, well, first of all, it's very competitive to become a tenant, um, but also you're going to need a, generally a significant capital outlay. Well, you're competing with James Dyson nowadays, aren't you, in a lot of the country? He's gone from being, you know, a very small landowner to being the largest he has, in the country he has. now, I believe. Um, yes, he has, but um, of course he's not, he's not the only one. And I think you know, what he is doing is a very sustainable, efficient model of farming that is something that I think the wider sector would do quite a lot to, uh, 
could learn from uh, from him. Yeah, it's difficult in terms of you know there's a lot of best practice being done by large landowners. I guess the question is, are there lots of examples of best practice that are being lost because there's not so much diversity in terms of land ownership? Um, there probably is, which is why I think we need a, a variety of scales. Too much of the conversation in the last few years has been about the supposed competing merits of big versus small. Yeah. Um, such of the research that's been done on this suggests that scale doesn't really matter. You can have um, very efficient, productive small farmers. You can have very bad, very inefficient large farmers. What matters is being um, good at it and conscientious. Yeah, and then I guess this connects to, you know, should payments being given to landowners have a lid on it? Because from travelling around the country and meeting farmers and farm workers, a very strong message I get from them is as a result of there being no limit on the amount of money that you can get in farm subsidies and, and, and state handouts, that does lead to a consolidation. And I believe David Cameron explicitly said that he saw the purpose of farm subsidies to lead to a consolidation in the sector. Now, when I hear that, I hear him say, we want to put small scale businesses out of business because we don't see them as being viable. Um, I don't recall David Cameron saying that. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was George Monbiot who told me he said that, so I okay. have, to, have to see if I could bend his ear to find out when it was said. I, I but, certainly um, have no recollection of saying that. And okay. I would have thought if he had said it in, in George's presence, George would have made quite a lot of it. But mm. anyway, um, I think the first stage is to decide what the payments are for, but uh, before you decide whether they should be capped. Mm. If they're supporting farmers in the provision of public benefits, yeah. then the more public benefits you provide, um, the more money you should get for doing so. Mm. If the money is being paid for some other purpose, um, then the arguments for capping become a little more credible. And in terms of public good and, and farming, a report, Germany via a Netherlands peer-reviewed journal says that there's been a 75% drop in insects in 27 years. And, um, you know, the role that pesticides, insecticides, and um, seems to take in modern large-scale and industrialised farming, it, I find it hard to see how that has a future if we're framing anything in terms of public good. And you, know, you, you mentioned the National Farmers Union earlier, you know, there were people who would suggest that um, calling them the English Agribusiness Lobby Group would be a more appropriate title for them. Do you, you know, sort of I'm just sort of trying to work out where the lines would be drawn in terms of if we're going to frame things for common good, how that can be preserved from the enormous lobbying power of organisations who want to increase their market wealth of chemical usage, which leads to, say, a 70%, 75% drop in, in insects in 27 years. I mean, obviously, that's Germany, but um, I you know, would certainly imagine that there's been a, a reasonably comparable loss in biodiversity in this country over a similar time period. You're right, the evidence does suggest that there's been a, a decline in biodiversity. Um, there'll be a number of reasons for that. Um, habitat, habitat loss being as important as, yeah, as anything in this. You can't um, point to one things. Most farmers and land managers, land managers would recognise the importance of insects to their business, yeah. most obviously pollinating for sure. um, insects, which we can't manage without. Um, and are trying to reduce their, their pesticide use accordingly. Mm -hmm. I mean, clearly it's, it's not universal, mm -hmm. um, but, but most are trying to uh, address the challenges in that way. And even amongst the um, uh, plant protection product manufacturers, I think there's a, a recognition that things can't go on as, as we would, as they have done, yeah. and that we need to move to more sustainable models where things like um, soil management or different cropping uh, approaches become the way forward mm -hmm. rather than just relying on, on chemical assistance. Yeah, I hope that's the case because, I mean, those statistics about how many harvests we have left in our soil before it's exhausted... Uh... Yeah, the, I think soil is a separate issue, but okay. sticking with, with pollinators. Yeah. For example, um, uh, Rothamsted, which is one of the leading uh, research, if not the leading research institute for um, plant protection products, I openly say they are... Uh, working towards a world where there are no pesticides. That's a bold statement. Because was, other methods will will yeah, deal yeah. with the will meet the need. 
it's, it's funny, this whole journey began by a trip to Rothamsted for me when um, they had their first open air testing of genetically modified organisms in, I think, 10 years. And a, a number of food growers and farmers went there to say, well, you know, there's no government funding at the moment going into, say, testing potatoes that can grow quite happily and, and that, you know, sort of a blight proof. And yet, you know, you're, yeah, you're funding testing of, of GMOs that aren't clearly useful in our current farming sector. Is GM ever something that the CLA has explored having a position on, or do you see it outside your remit? Um, when we have discussed it, views are very mixed, and, yeah. and as you'd expect, very polarised. Yeah. Um, there are some people who are very keen, some who would regard them as anathema. Mm -hmm. um, but to some extent, the debate is, is moving on. Mm. You know, um, GMOs were thought to have a, a certain role several years ago, but technology and farming practices have become more developed so I'm not sure it's quite the issue that it was. Yeah, no, it does seem it's moved on. But I guess you, if, you, if you take a step back, a lot of it is around the sort of um, intellectual property grab of, of food and seeds and whether corporations or, or, or you know, other entities going after sort of intellectual property um, is in the best interests. And I recognise that, you know, innovation and... Um, technology, those things do deserve some protection, but uh, again, the, the power that those organisations have to lobby in their best interests um, does seem to to set a bit of an unfair playing field in yeah. terms of the public good. Yeah, I think to some extent you, you've, you've already answered your own question. Um, if we're having new technologies, we want them to be safe and, and to work. Mm. Um, that comes at a, a cost. You know, there is an awful lot of money and time spent on things that never come to, to market. Mm. Um, so it's not unreasonable for uh, the companies that carry out the investment to want to protect their products when they are shown to be um, safe and, and effective. But isn't, I mean, in terms of uh, is it medicines, I think, is it medicines you get, you get 10, 10 years to, to realise a profit from your intellectual property before it becomes public domain? It's not my, um, not my feel, but just like, you know, in terms of there being a, you know, somebody coming along and saying, okay, we, you know, we, well, I, I guess part of it is, to begin with, some of the things that are being patented aren't things that have any degree of innovation. They're literally just going into parts of the world that have less developed intellectual property or a more understanding grasp of the commons and actually just going like, right, we've found this, even though you've been growing it for hundreds or thousands of years, this is now ours because we can take this back to our... Our, our empire that has better lawyers. I, I can't really talk about the details of intellectual property yeah. more in, um, in developing countries. Fair enough. Um, going to the sort of, uh, you know, potential to move to a framework where landowners and farmers are rewarded by the state for providing um, public goods, I guess that also sort of connects into right to roam and universal access to land. I'm quite struck by the fact that... Um, Scotland, Finland, Iceland, Norway, Sweden, Austria, I believe their embassy is just next door, so they'd be um, easy to check with, and yeah. Switzerland are all places where, you know, it's an understanding that you are allowed to walk for education and recreation wherever you want to, with um, a few exceptions being made. We live in a country that has a, a very different understanding of that at the moment, and um, the justifications for that have tended to, um, I've not found them massively convincing. I was just wondering if you could sort of offer some thoughts on whether you think it's time to have another debate about um, whether we should have a presumption of a right to access rather than a presumption that there's not on land in our country, especially if there's going to be public sort of benefit connected to the subsidies. Again, I think there's a number of different aspects to this. Um, our public access arrangements are largely historical based mm -hmm. on our uh, public rights of way network and the principle that once something's a highway it's always a highway um, which is what provides the the, the, the bulk of the routes that, that people make use of um, landowners are obliged to go and live with that and, and most of them accept that perfectly well um, since then we've had the imposition of public rights of access uh, in, in various forms over the years and, of course, not everyone likes it when it first happens, but an awful lot depends on, on how it's done. Um, if it's done in a way that recognises 
business concerns or environmental concerns that those aren't uh, disproportionately compromised, then normally some some arrangement can become can be can be found. The frustration arises when landowners are already providing access in a way that works for them and works for users. Uh, and then the state comes along and tries to impose a sort of one-size-fits-all uh, approach, you know, which is rather what we saw with, with coastal access. You know, before the right of access to the, the coast came in, something like 83% of the, the coast was open to the, the public in various ways. Uh, of the part that wasn't, um, half of that was MOD land or port land, so it was never going to be available. Um, so we've had a huge amount of time, trouble and expense for a fairly small um, increase in the amount of land available. You know, the fact that that was provided by the land that was being provided was largely being provided by landowners on a voluntary basis mm -hmm. um, doesn't make it any less real in terms mm -hmm. of its um, availability. Yeah, I, I hear that. It doesn't, I guess it doesn't chime with my experience. I mean, I'll give you an, an illustration of an experience of mine. A close friend of mine lives just north of Sirencester and has an acre of land with a converted farm building where her family have lived for I think about 20, 25 years. And there is only one public footpath for miles and miles in that whole area, despite there obviously having been footpaths historically there because things, you know, like it seems obvious that there have been ways from the way that the landscape is. and anybody who you know wants to go for a walk in that part of the Cotswolds literally ends up on main roads well not main roads just just roads or um that one footpath and you know the lord was you know i can't remember the person's name who who owns all that land still is you know very keen to get his gamekeepers to chase down dog walkers or anybody else and you know the idea that he would in any way turn around and say, oh, actually, no, it's okay. I don't mind if a few people walk on my land. You guys have asked nicely. Um, like that doesn't seem to be the reality of that situation. So I was just imagining, you know, how you could imagine that situation changing so that people were able to access I, that area of land. I, I'm sure the situation you've described is, is, is correct. Hmm. Um, but I think it's very much the exception. Um, the vast majority of landowners don't object to responsible walkers coming onto their um, coming onto their land, providing they don't cause any great um, disturbance or upset um, uh, existing activities. And the idea of a, going back to an age when you had gamekeepers ready to pounce on anyone who chose to walk on your land yeah, yeah. would be anathema um, sure. to, to, to most people. I, I can find that connect some... Um, one of the points you mentioned oh. about if you're receiving um, public money for the provision of public goods, mm. I think that does change the dynamic. Mm. I think it's unreasonable to expect taxpayers to pay for what you're doing on your land and then say that those taxpayers can't come and see the results. Mm. Interesting. Subject I... to finding a, you know, a balance. You wouldn't want to upset what's being provided. Yeah. And... I guess sort of connecting onto this would be a sort of transparency issue because, um, you know, as, as we've chewed the cut over in the past um, before, you know, our, there's still no written record or centralised written, written record of who owns a fifth of the country and the way our land registry is set up is quite a long way from what would be considered a more transparent model in, for example, in the way that France or parts of America I visited had. You know, do you think it's time that landowners allowed a bit more transparency about who controls parts or who controls all of the land and who owns all the land and that that sort of cadastral map is publicly accessible with the named beneficiaries of that land. It's, it's not a matter of allowing it. You know, landowners don't have a, have a veto. Um, government just hasn't thought it necessary to, to shift to such a system. Um, if they did, how would we react? I suspect the majority wouldn't like it, but wouldn't think they had any great right to challenge it. Now, for example, when this was proposed in Scotland, yeah. um, Scottish landowners felt there were more important things to argue about than, uh, than that. that that's, I mean, that's, very, that's a very generous interpretation, but I feel your organisation has 
considerably more power than you're alluding to. And I remember enjoying the last iteration of your website, which had a, a long and proud about us history section where you talked about how triumphantly you present, prevented various things from happening in the past. And luckily that is all preserved on an internet archive. And I had a read through it earlier. And um, you know, this idea that you don't have members who wield considerable behind the scenes political power in terms of controlling what things come on the public discourse and agenda and political discourse and what don't. Um, I, I struggle with that. And actually just to frame that even more, I, I got a quote off your old website, which only went changed a couple of years ago. And that was, um, trespassers may legally be shot under a number of circumstances in the US and South Africa. In Britain, the rights of landowners have always been more tenuous. And I'd know like that was, you know, uh, that was on your website two years ago. And I kind of interpret that as the CLA being nostalgic that landowners aren't able to shoot people on their land. And, and uh, this was just part of a very long sort of about us history. So I just wonder if you could, you know, if you could comment on that, whether... Um, I, I don't recall that wording and I would rather hope it, it, it's tongue in cheek. Yeah. Um, the vast majority of landowners are very alert to reputational issues and, and recognise that in many cases they, they enjoy considerable good fortune and, um, and have to exercise it in a, in a responsible way. Mm. Um, in terms of the extent of our power, Sounds a bit like you've been talking to Marion Short. Um, <laughs> I've um, certainly read Marion Short's yeah, book, whose, and whose book yeah. talks about this uh, at some length. Indeed, there's um, a lot of but, detail and a lot of research. But she does so um, uh, in a um, she, when she does so, she's talking about a pre-reformed uh, House of Lords. Right. Um, in her book, um, she does describe the CLA as being an unusual lobbying organisation <laughs> in that most lob lobbying organisations um, decide there's a particular cause they need to promote and build alliances um, and seek to influence politicians. Um, whereas with the CLA, most of the concerns about preventing things happening and they can do that through the, the House of Lords. I mean, two things in response to that. Uh, our agenda isn't just about stopping bad things happening, it's also about trying to, to, to improve things, move things forward, a positive um, yeah. agenda. And um, secondly, there's now surprisingly few um, old-style rural Tories in the House of Lords who are in a position right. to, um, uh, to upset government policy in the same way. And in terms of local councils, the sort of Lord Lieutenant's model and the way that the judiciary is chosen by large landowning families, do you think that that's changed considerably since her book was written? Oh, I think, well, I'm not sure how, much, how true it was even at the time she was writing in the, in the mid-80s. Um, but no, the idea that large landowners get to appoint councillors or judges is, is nonsense. Mm, okay. And, you know, I uh, had the, the fortune to come across um, a recording of a documentary she made in the 90s in which she interviews, for example, the late Duke of Westminster. And in his interview, um, the way he was talking about his attitude to his land um, differs quite considerably from some of the sort of ways you're illustrating typical landowners and I'm just wondering if you feel that you know the culture has moved on considerably in the last 20 or 30 years or whether he's not representative of the way that landowners um, feel about their land and feel about people um, yeah being on their land. I, without knowing the details I can't comment on what he said okay um, but if you for example, look at the, the websites of most of the big rural estates, mm -hmm. and they all have them, mm -hmm. um, and look at their mission statement and their objectives. Yeah. The language is very much in terms of the public benefits that they can provide. Mm. The, well, just you know, think through what you get from traditional estates that you wouldn't get from other models, mm. just going through the you know, sort of economic, social, environmental um, features. Mm. Um, in terms of the, the local economy, in many cases you'll have uh, an estate which has got a history and a sort of a brand that can create quite a strong sense of local identity which smaller businesses can, can, can buy into. Um, in those more remote areas you'll often find that um, 
uh, it's the estate is the only one with the um, will and ability to find to, to, to provide affordable housing. Now, in many cases, it's the estate that is the social housing provider in that area because no one else can can make the figures work out in the way that that they can. Um, in terms of economics, if they can um, bring people together um, so that they become more than the the sum of their parts, there can be economies of scale. Um, purchasing power which will uh, improve things in the area. Um, they can take risks more readily, um, adopt a more perhaps more entrepreneurial approach because they've got the um, the scale to provide sort of comfort with that. There's a whole sort of range of things that, that can be done. And on the environmental side, because they operate at scale, they become much more able to deliver the Lawton type agenda of bigger, better, more joined up. They, there's a whole range of things that can be delivered in rural areas through estates that it's quite hard to think how they could be delivered elsewhere. And estates, to my mind, are becoming much better at explaining that and demonstrating it than perhaps was the way that was done historically. Yeah, that's, I think that's, that's an interesting point. I guess where I would counter that is I would point to some of the land reform that's gone on in Scotland. And, you know, you look at, say, the island of Egg, which now has a collective community power because it owns all of its land. Mm. And there's been a massive renaissance in the economy and in people moving back to that area. And that seems to be a nice illustration of what happens when communities are empowered rather than having to doff their cap to some local magnet who has all the power over them. Um, I don't think it's about doffing caps and, uh, and the like. It's more about partnership, that different parties can bring different features to the picture. I mean, one of the frustrations with the typical landlord and tenant model is that it's based in conflict. The interests of one will conflict with the interests of the other. Um, many of the more progressive estates are looking at a more joint venture type approach where the landowner is able to go and provide some of the factors of production, most particularly the land, but sometimes some of the um, capital or whatever, um, whereas the tenants, for want of a better word, can bring other things um, to the picture, you know, labour initiative, etc. Mm -hmm. And together they can produce something that is economically, socially, environmentally better than either of them could have done, done before. It's not to say that's the only model, um, but it's a model that does exist and can work well for the everyone involved. I feel like it would be good for me to see some of the examples that you think of as best practice because every time I go and visit people in the countryside I don't hear positive stories. You know I can think of, I mean say a, a, another friend who I visit down in Devon somewhere, where is it? Snow Somerset and um, you know again they live in the only house in the village that isn't owned by the the local um, aristocrat and all the doors are painted his family colour and um, you know every so often he has a whim that he wants to do something or change something or build something or chop something down and mm. you know there's an incredibly antagonistic and disempowered relationship between the people who are his tenants and his whims so I mean I guess the first thing is you know I, I would greatly value if you could point me in this direction of some some best practice maybe I could go and see them and have conversations with them and maybe even interview them for this podcast but um, yeah, it's it's it's, it's interesting. Oh, I can certainly that... point you towards a range of um, uh, more progressive estates. Um, yeah, I'm sure there are bad examples. I'm sure there are cases when it doesn't work. Yeah, uh, but I think you'd find the same with any other social structure. Yeah, no, for sure. I'm. Um, yeah, I can I can well imagine that. I mean, I'm sure that there are very righteous charities or co-ops mm. that have their own problems. I guess it's just the extreme power dynamic between um, you know somebody who owns thousands of acres and tens if not hundreds of homes and um, yeah those those power dynamics well, it's funny or in many they... cases will be providing homes that otherwise wouldn't be provided you know, the, in many cases the the developers the housing associations don't have the um, economic ability to go and reach into those areas mm. whereas the the landowner who wants to go and maintain a sense of community, wants to maintain the village, mm. wants to have somewhere for his staff to, to, to live. Yeah. Um, yeah, will no, be no. willing to go and make that investment. I, I guess that, you know, all of those examples are very top-down things, and I'm very interested in the sort of self-help, community build, mm. and, you know, sort of like maybe a modern Plotlands movement, whereby 
people are empowered to create the communities that they want in the places they want. And, um, you know, we, yeah, we've, we've come a very long way from that. And now we just assume that everything is done in a top-down centralised way, whether it's, you know, a government, a charity or a local large yes. landowner. Um, I can accept that the model in many ways is is top-down. I mean, sorry, not just the, the traditional land ownership type mm, model, mm. but the way that things are done generally is, yeah. is top-down. Across the, I mean, across the left and right mm. divide. And, you know, I've been really inspired by reading a lot of Colin Ward's analysis of, you know, where both um, uh, Labour Tory governments have, have mm. gone wrong in terms of things being top-down. But it's just like, can, you know, communities be facilitated to, to self-build and to do you know to do those things themselves if they're always doing it on other people's land and given you know the extreme prices that land have got to as a result of the tax avoidance that's available through you know agricultural land tax breaks and things i mean should the, should i just want to clarify that you know i mean as far as i'm aware you can you know buy as much agricultural land as you can afford and there's no inheritance tax on that and i can absolutely make sense of the idea that a family farm I'm not sure whether I'm looking at 50 acres, 100 acres or 500 acres shouldn't be broken up um, through inheritance tax. But the idea that, say, somebody like the Duke of Westminster can avoid, uh, gosh, I can't remember whether it was millions or billions, those numbers all just telephone in, you know, numbers into my head. But, you know, like, can you see any argument for there being a limit on the amount of land that you can use to avoid inheritance tax? People... The extent to which people use land to avoid inheritance tax, I think, is is limited. It's important that you shouldn't have to go and pay significant or indeed any um, inheritance tax on land or businesses for the reasons you say. You don't want um, every business to end on the death of the owner because a significant amount of tax has to be paid. You know, there is a perfectly good and sensible reason why they why they exist. Um, they're not the only way, though, that people um, uh, don't have to pay tax on death. No, I think with, with um, the Duke of Westminster, I think it was primarily trusts rather than uh, agricultural property relief that he was relying on, mm -hmm. or the family was um, relying on, which exists for a, a different purpose. Maybe, um, maybe I need to go and have a conversation with him. I wonder who I could get to introduce me to have a, a podcast with the Duke <laughs> of Westminster. That would, be, that would be a fun conversation, I'm sure. Um, Goliagoshik. So, and then was I, I was the last thing I was noting. I was looking on your your website earlier about um, about your position on fracking, actually, because obviously that's a very topical, mm. current sort of land rights issue. And I've had the privilege to to visit some of the fracking sites where communities are doing a, an incredible job of um, slowing down um, and preventing from that that um, those sites from establishing themselves. As far as I understood saw on your website that you were worried about the long-term liabilities of landowners where fracking occurs. And I just, something that I learned recently that really surprised and shocked me um, was that every single different fracking site is owned by a different company that has deliberately loaded up with debt so that if it ever gets in any um, legal problem, it can just declare bankruptcy and walk away. And I just wondered if that was something that was on your radar and how you felt that connected in terms of the liabilities of when things will inevitably go wrong if people are allowed to, to you know, sort of, I think, treat the ground and intensive um, extractive industries in such a reckless way. Um, yeah, we are, whilst we have a strong desire to move to a more sustainable energy policy than we've got at the moment, we don't take a view on whether fracking is the way to, to get there. Our concern is very much, because there's other organisations that can talk about that, yeah. um, our concern is much more with the position of the, the landowner. Um, and, and you're quite right. Um, we would find it very difficult to tolerate a situation um, in which the landowner was held liable for any environmental or other damage resulting from from fracking. You know, it must be for the fracking companies to pick up the costs of any liability um, rather than having the ability to, to avoid that, rather garbled way of saying it, uh, rather than having the ability to avoid that liability or walk away from it. Wonderful. Well, I wonder if um, 
we could do a, do a call out across your networks to any landowners who wanted to come and join some of us at any of the fracking sites. Um, we have members who are very split um, yeah. on the issue. Mm. And I think someone who you were referring to a moment ago, um, I won't say who, has got very strong views. Yeah. I'll tell you what off. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> and I just, well, so, well, I think, kind of, yeah, good to, to wrap up fairly soon. There was, I think, one thing, I mean, we, you know, I think we've been both been quite surprised at, you know, despite coming from very different places, the fact that there are areas where there's maybe significant common ground between us personally and, and I say maybe inside the CLA, if the CLA officially hasn't reached a position on it yet. In terms of the next couple of years for the CLA trying to reach a conclusion on land value tax, what, you know, what path can you see to members and, and the wider public having the best quality understanding of what that looks like and what that means and how that might work and in terms of your organisation reaching an opinion or a position on it, is it something where you know it's a bit chicken and egg in terms of you need to have a critical mass of members or key influential members or what, yeah, just I was wondering what that looks well, like. I think there's a, a number of factors. I think possibly the starting point is no matter how attractive you find um, land, land value tax, it's the sort of thing that's going to require some sort of seismic shift in political life mm. now, of the sort that brought about the NHS, that level yeah. of reform, yeah. um, uh, to bring it in. The thing that gives land value tax a particular attraction is what I was saying earlier, that it could result in a significant um, uh, transfer of money from urban areas into rural areas. Mm. You know, um, everyone from Jeremy Warner in the Times to George Monbiot in the Guardian has, has picked up on this. And the economist uh, waxes point. lyrical about it always. Well, the economist and, and the FT both talk about land value tax. Mm. It's those two people that first flagged, at least to my eyes, yeah. um, the, the possibility of uh, uh, it resulting in a, a flood of money coming into, into rural areas.